We're going to be looking today at actually four people in one sermon uh, that are going to kind of pull together the same idea of God's faithfulness in their lives and how that sustained their faith in some hard times. And so uh, we're going to be in verses 20 through 23. Uh, if you're a guest or if you're visiting today and you need a Bible, you don't have one with you, there's some hardback black ones there in the chairs around you, please find one of those and follow along. We'd love for you to do that. If you're online, hopefully you've got a copy of God's Word with you. You can grab that and follow along as well. And uh, we're just going to dive into Hebrews 11, 20 through 23. So how many of you have ever heard or, or maybe even said something to this effect? Um, it's always been this way. Have you, have you heard that before, right? Like you, that's kind of like a, a mantra amongst some people. Um, there are some things you expect to just never change because they've always been that way, right? Like, like the seasons. Right? We always have the seasons. Uh, gravity. It's always been there. We don't expect that to ever change, right? The, the violent swings in St. Louis weather. Like that's just always been there. It's just not going to change. We just expect some things to always be like that. Well, for me growing up, one of the things that I expected to always be the same and never change was grandma's sweet potatoes at Christmas dinner. It was highlight of the meal. It was the best thing I had all year long. It was always a, a looking forward to. And I just, I just, it was, it'd been there ever since I was eating solid foods. I'd had grandma's sweet potatoes at Christmas. And then uh, as we got older, she eventually passed. And it struck me after she had passed, like, no more sweet potatoes. That wasn't the, the worst part about her passing. I was upset that she's my grandma, but, like, but that was a big deal. And, and so we were approaching Christmas dinner, and I was like, oh, no, what are we going to do? This is horrible. Thankfully, my mom, um, in her foresight, had learned the recipe from grandma uh, before her passing and was able to come in and save Christmas dinner, and we still get to have uh, sweet potatoes. So we now have a, a future full of hope and joy and sweet potatoes because mom uh, stepped in and, and filled that gap for us. Um, and, but as a kid, I, just, I expect that was, that was something that's just always going to be there, right? Like you just expect it not to change. But the reality is that's not life, is it? Circumstances change. Our lives change. People come and go. Things happen. There's things we can control. There's some things we can't control. But change is always a part of our lives, and sometimes that can make us fearful about the future. Sometimes that can make us feel weighed down and, and, and scared about what's going to come, and we can, we can lose sight and hope for what God has for us in the future because of impending change. But what we're going to see in the Scripture today is, thankfully, we do have a constant in our lives. Something, someone that will never change is always true and gives us hope for the future, no matter what comes our way. And that is God and his faithfulness. And so the main thing I want you to see from these examples today is this, that deeper faith finds my hope for the future in God's faithfulness in the past. It's by looking at and knowing God's faithfulness throughout all the years and all the generations that gives me a hope that he's going to be faithful again in the future, and I can trust him for that. And that's what we're going to see in the lives of these people today in Hebrews chapter 11, 20 through 23. So, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Look at verse 20 with me in Hebrews 11. It says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And 21, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So here's the first point I want you to know about God's faithfulness this morning. Number one, God's faithfulness gives me hope to share 
with the next generation. God's faithfulness gives me hope, it gives us hope as a people, as a church, to share with the next generation, whether it be our kids or others in the church or friends or, or, or neighbors. And we see this, see this exemplified through Isaac first. It says, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Now, let's just talk about a father's blessing for a moment. Because in this time, in this culture, a father's blessing was a huge deal. All right, This was usually towards the end of his life. This is where the father would formally pronounce his greatest hopes and his greatest dreams, and his greatest vision, and desires for his children in the future. Now, it, it wasn't necessarily prophetic, right? Like, I think sometimes we can get that confused. It wasn't necessarily like God was promising that these things would happen. This was just what the Father was saying, hey, I, this is what I want for your life, right? And I'm just, I'm going to bless you with these words and these things. But even though it wasn't necessarily God's promises, it was still carried great weight as the father spoke blessings over his children. And it was an even bigger deal in a highly dysfunctional family like Isaac's. If you don't have a whole lot of background around this family, let me kind of just catch you up a little bit. So in this family, mom and dad, Isaac and Rebecca, they both had their favorite twin, right? They have two sons, they're twins. They each had their favorite kid. Jacob had, or Rebecca had Jacob, and they were both com- just utterly deceitful and conniving <laughs> pretty much their whole lives. And then you have Esau, the other son, who was prideful and had no regard for his family, honoring his family, honoring the God of his family. He just kind of just pushed all of that to the side. And then you have Isaac, the patriarch, the leader, who was a pathological conflict avoider and people pleaser. And so this family was just in a mess. And as a result, no one in the family felt fully loved or safe or blessed in their own home. There was always this turmoil in the family. And when that is your family life, when that's your family dynamics, you long even more to hear your father's blessing. You long to finally feel the unconditional love and pleasure of your father spoken into your life. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Many of you had a home like this, where your father was absent, either emotionally or spiritually or even physically, like he just wasn't even there, he was gone. And that has created for you a hole in your heart that longs to hear the blessing from the lips of your father. And you feel like there's this missing piece in your life without that love, without that favor, without that blessing from your dad. And at this point in your life, I don't know where you're at on that. Maybe you miss him still and you long for that still. Maybe you just got to the point where you just hate him now. You're like, forget you, I'm done. Maybe you just want to plead, maybe you just want to prove yourself. Like, I don't need you. I can get through on this on my own. I, I don't know where your heart's at on that. All people take that differently. But I know this. When we have that experience, it colors how we see God as our Heavenly Father. You aren't sure if you can really trust Him. You aren't sure if you can, can really 
love him and that he will love you back because the last guy didn't do that. And that longing, that hurt, that hole that you have inside, what you really need to hear is not just your physical father's blessing, but you need to hear your heavenly father's blessing. You need to hear the love and the favor of the Lord wash over your life. That's what makes the difference. That's what Jacob and Esau needed in the midst of this dysfunction. And so let's look at their story back in Genesis 27. I'm going to skip around a lot in Genesis Nexus today, so a lot of it will be on the screen. If you want to try to follow along your Bibles, you can. But in Genesis 27, let me kind of summarize. So Isaac, the dad, he decides it's time to give this blessing. Right? This is what Hebrews is talking about, this story. And so he decides he's going to only give his blessing to Esau. So he calls Esau in, and he says, hey, I want you to go make my favorite meal, and uh, come, and we're going to do the ceremony, I'm going to give you my blessing. Not Jacob, Jacob's cut out, just Esau. Well, Rebekah, his wife, overhears all of this, and Esau goes off to do his thing. Rebekah then devises this plan to trick her husband, Isaac, into giving the blessing not to Esau, but to her favorite son, Jacob. And Jacob goes along with his mom's, you know, master plan here. And he goes in and he cons his own father into thinking that he is his brother so that his father will bless him. This is how much they wanted this. Right? They're longing for it. And so Isaac is fooled and he ends up blessing Jacob in verses 28 and 29. Here's what he says. Here's the blessing. He says, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine... Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So Isaac, he speaks this blessing of provision and power and protection over Jacob. That God would give him every good thing. So Jacob gets that and he leaves. Finally, Esau shows up ready for the blessing ceremony and he comes in to only find out that his Stinking brother, Jacob, has slipped in again and stolen his blessing. And he, he pleads with his dad, like, please, like, surely there's something you can give me. Surely this, give me some blessing as well. Bless me too, Father. And Isaac says, sorry, I, I gave it all to your brother. I, I gave him everything. I blessed him with everything. And then he speaks this, quote-unquote, blessing over Esau in verses 39 and 40. Listen to the contrast here. He says, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, or your dwelling shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau gets no provision, no power, no protection. The only thing he gets is that one day he'll break away from his brother and ultimately from his own family and from the God of his family. And so Jacob gets the good blessing, Esau gets the bad blessing, but honestly, they're both really weak blessings. Both sons. Because they're all focused and built on a father's material wishes for his son. They're superficial, they're empty, they're not fulfilling because they're not ultimately from the Lord. They're not from the father. But then we get to Genesis 28. So after this whole thing has transpired, 
Now Jacob is the favored son. He's gotten the blessing, all of that. So Isaac calls him in and he says, I'm going to send you away to your mother's family in another country to go and find a wife because I don't want you marrying somebody from or these other people around us who don't worship our same God. So you're going to go over here. You're going to find somebody and get married. And not only am I going to send you away to do that, but uh, also that'll keep Esau from killing you <laughs> because it's about to go down. So like, you just go over here, get your wife, and, and we're going to play it out that way. But before... Before Jacob leaves to do that, Esau speaks a second blessing over Jacob, a better blessing, because it's the Lord's blessing this time. Look at verse 20, or chapter 28, verses 3 and 4. It says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land and of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. You already see a difference when he starts off, right? His very first words, may God bless you, right? It's not coming from Isaac this time. He's passing on the blessings of the Lord because that's what Jacob really needs, and as he does this in, this, in this blessing, he repeats the covenant promises, the covenant prophecy of God that he has given to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Jacob through this blessing. And there's two main parts. He says, may you be fruitful and multiply and become a company of peoples, right? That was part of the promise. And may you take possession of the land, These were all the blessings that God gave to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, and now have been passed down through the generations to Jacob. Isaac, at this point, finally gets it right, and he points Jacob back to these promises of God in the past. It's no longer about the now. It's no longer about the future. It's about what has God already promised? What has he already done? He's remembering the faithfulness of God, and he's passing that on to his heir, this is the better blessing that he needed. The blessing of faith. And a God that always has been there and always has been faithful. And what we're going to see, if you, if you would read on in Genesis, we don't have time this morning, but if you would read on in Jacob's story, this becomes the turning point for Jacob's life. From here on out, he starts to seek the Lord. He starts to turn from his sinful ways, and he starts to follow after the God of his father and his grandfather. Because, he, his, because Isaac passed on the blessing of faith. Now, back in Hebrews 11, so that's the Isaac part. And then the next verse, in verse 21, it says that then Jacob, now that he's received the blessing, he then blesses the sons of Joseph. So he follows Isaac's lead, he follows his dad's lead, and he passes on that same blessing to his son and to his grandsons in the next generation. And this goes all the way over to Genesis 48. So we're going to skip a whole lot there and get to Genesis 48 where um, we see Jacob now talking to Joseph and his sons. And it says in verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make, you of a, make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And so he starts off by just remembering God's promises again. And repeating them and teaching them once again to Joseph, the next generation. And not only is he blessing Joseph with this, but he's blessing Joseph's sons with it as well. He's passing on this story for years to come. And as we scroll down in Genesis 48 to uh, chapter, or verse 15, 
This is where he actually gives the blessing. He says this. He says, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, Joseph's boys, his sons. Right? And so he's, he's asking, he's praying that God would pass on this blessing that's been going all through this family, through all these generations of his faithfulness that we passed on now to Joseph's sons. He goes on and says, And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. I love this. You see this all throughout the Old Testament, that every time they talk about God's faithfulness, they always do it with this language, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's a shorthand way of saying, remember. Remember what God did. Remember how he sustained the people, how he kept the promises, how the family kept going on through all the miracles and through all the stuff that God did. God was faithful. And Isaac, or in this case, Jacob is passing that on to Joseph and to his sons. He says, bless the boys, extend this blessing to the next generation. And he's, he's instructing them, he's, he's telling them, like, listen, God's faithfulness in the past is your hope for the future. This is what you have to hold on to. Jacob knows that passing it on in, in this form of a blessing of faith is what they really need. That's what we all need. We need God's blessing of faith. And we need to pass that on to our kids and, and to their kids and to other people in our church and to other people in our neighborhood and our family and anyone who doesn't have it. I once was leading a, um, like a, a class, a Bible study class with a bunch of guys, and um, it was on like, it was on, like uh, marriage and parenting and stuff, and so we were sitting there, and I, I asked them a question. I said, what's the one thing that you most want to pass on to your kids? Like if there was like one thing at the top of the list, what's the one thing that you most want, like when you're gone, your kids, like that's what they remember of you. That's what they learned from you. That's what they got from you. And we kind of went around the circle, and, and some of them said, you know, a lot of character traits. Like, I want them to be a hard worker. Right? I want them to be honest. I want them to, be, to have a good sense of humor, like all these kind of things. Some of them talked about different knowledge that they wanted to pass on or different skills they wanted to pass on. But what struck me was not one guy in the entire group said Christ or salvation or the gospel. Like, nobody, nobody went that direction. And it's not because they didn't care about the salvation of their kids. They definitely did. These were godly men. They loved their kids. They wanted them to be saved. Like, they, they wanted all of that. But when asked the question, what's the one thing that you most want to pass on to your kids, their brains didn't go spiritual. Their brains went physical, went worldly, right? Like, I want them to have this. They need this to survive. They need this to make it in life. They need this to get through this, this world. <clears throat> And I think too often we get stuck in that trap. That thinking the best hope for the next generation is that they go and get that education. Right? If we just get them through college and they can get a good job, then they're going to be set. Or if, 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 if they can just learn how to manage their money and, and not get in a bunch of debt and, and save and have the, the, <clears throat> the envelopes or the bank account or whatever your system is, like, then they'll be all right. If we can just teach them right about sexuality and they don't get off on all these tangents in our world today. Like, if we can just get them on the right path there, then they'll have a healthy relationship and things will be good. 
if they can just find the right spouse, if they can just get the right career, if we can just somehow save this crazy environment so we don't all plummet to our deaths when the world implodes, or whatever your thing is, right? Like, we get stuck in all this other stuff, thinking that that's the most important thing that we can bless our kids with. That's the most important thing that I can pass on, is getting them through these things. And we miss the most important thing, which is the blessing of faith. That's what they need most. They need you to tell them of the faithfulness of God so that their faith becomes their own and they worship the God that you worship. None of those other things are going to fulfill their promises. We get a whole lot of promises from this world, but they're all going to fail eventually because they're all things of man. They're all things of this world. They're not going to last beyond this place. But God is. Faith is. Salvation is. And if we don't teach our kids of the blessing of faith, then who will? They're not getting that from anywhere else. If we don't pass on the blessing to the next generation, they will be lost. It's our job. And so the thing I take away from this is that the best blessing I can give is to tell others of the faithfulness of the Lord. The best blessing I can give to you, to my kids, to the people around me, to anyone who's willing to listen, is to tell them of the faithfulness of God and the glory of the gospel. That's what they need. That's the blessing that Hebrews is talking about here. So that's the first thing we see here about God's faithfulness, but there's more. Take a look back at Hebrews 11, verse 22. It says, By faith, Joseph, now we're to the next generation, okay, so we went Isaac, Jacob, now we're at Joseph, at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That's just weird. (laughs) But but it's going to make sense in a second, right? Just stay with me. Point number two is this. God's faithfulness gives me hope to see beyond this life. God's faithfulness gives me hope to see beyond this life. So it says here that Joseph made mention of the Exodus. When, when Hebrews says that, it's referring to the end of Joseph's life in Genesis chapter 50. So let's go ahead and look at that. I got it on the screen here for you, I believe. So it says, so Joseph, verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he in his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, and the children also of Machir and of the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, that last statement is so important. He says, listen, God's going to bring you out of Egypt. He's going to bring you out of this land. He's going to take you back to the promised land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here, Joseph is declaring the hope of the exodus Hundreds of years before it happens. Because he knew the prophecy. He knew the promise of God that he had given to Abraham three generations prior. And he, that had been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And he was holding on to that hope. And now passing it on to his sons. We see that promise first given to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15. This is what he says in verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt. And they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation to the promised land. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, that's an awesome promise for Abraham at the time because, like, he knows, okay, it's, it's going to happen eventually. But think about it from Joseph's perspective, right? Like, out of all the Israelites, Joseph probably has the least reason to be excited about this prophecy, okay? Joseph has been, he's now 110 years old. He's lived the majority of his life not in Canaan, not in the Promised Land. He's lived in Egypt. This has been his home, right? And he's actually done pretty well there, Right? Not to mention the promised land has like a ton of bad memories for Joseph. Right? Like that was the place where him and his family got in the fight. His brothers beat him up and threw him in the pit and then sold him into slavery. Like not a, not a lot of good, pleasant things to think about going back to in Canaan for Joseph. Right? And now he, here he is in Egypt. He's done really well for himself. He's got riches. He's got power. He's practically royalty. He has so much he can provide a lavish lifestyle for his entire family when they move there in the midst of a famine. And according to God's promise that we just read to Abraham, his family, if they stayed in Egypt and, and, and did this whole thing, they were, they were going to have to go through 400 years of servitude and slavery and hardship to even get to the Exodus. And so by the world's standards, by the world's eyes, it would have been much more sensible for Joseph to be like, you know what, let's scrap that, forget that plan, like, well, let's just go all in in Egypt, right? Like, we'll just double down, I'll, I'll consolidate my power, we'll, we'll keep making more money, we'll make this our new home, and we'll just, just kind of assimilate ourselves into the Egyptian culture, and this will be our new place, these will be our new gods. But Joseph didn't say that, because that was not his heart. All through Joseph's life, his heart was always for the Lord. Always, no matter what circumstances came his way. And even now, on his deathbed, when he still hasn't got to see the fulfillment of the promise back in the promised land with God's people, he says, it's still coming. I haven't seen it. I'm not going to see it. I'm going on, but it's still coming, and you need to hope in that. He doesn't tell them to stay in Egypt. He says, get ready, because God's coming for you, and he's going to take you out. He's going to take you back to the promised land. Because Joseph's hope was not in the things of this world. His hope, were in the thing, his hope was in God and in God's perfect plan and in his promises for the future. Again, it was because of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says. The faithful God who had always taken care of his family. And so he looked beyond worldly wealth to the life that God would give them. He valued God's riches over man's riches. He valued the eternal over the fleeting. And his hope was in the faithfulness of God, even, this is crazy, even beyond his own life. And because of that, it says... He gave directions concerning his bones. 
which just sounds kind of crazy to us. We're like, what, what, well, the bone, like, who, who cares about the bones? But he does this in Genesis 50, 25. It says, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, the Exodus, and you shall carry up my bones from here. In other words, when God visits you and you go back to the promised land, take me with you. Right? Take my bones with you. I want to be with God's people in the promised land to see the thing play out. And this shows us how confident Joseph is in God's promises. It's, like, it's not going to happen in my life, probably not even your life. It's going to be a few years, but it is going to happen. God's going to do it. And when it happens, I want to go. It kind of reminds me of like a dad going off to war, like going off to you know, fight and, and this, he's got like a son that's like really scared that he's going to get killed and not come back. And, and, he, and he gets down real close to his son. He says, I, I love you. I promise I'm coming back. And, here, and he pulls out like his, like his special lucky coin out of his pocket. And he's like, hey, son, I want you to hold on to this for me. Because when I come back, I, w- I want you to have it. I want you to give it to me. And in giving his son that coin, he's, he's kind of like assuring his son, like, listen, I promise you, this is going to happen. It's okay. And in the bone statement, Joseph is assuring his sons, he's assuring the next year, like, listen, I promise you, God is going to do it. It's going to happen. And when it does, take my bones. Okay? And so, Joseph is all in on this promise from God. He believed that he still had a future life with God, even beyond this world. And that was more important than anything this world had to offer. His hope, his faith in God was bigger than this life. He had a God who had been faithful for eternity past, and therefore he knew that God would be faithful for eternity future. He knew that God was at work even if Joseph wouldn't get to see it. So oftentimes we doubt God because we don't get to see it. Joseph knew he wasn't going to see it, but he still believed. He still had hope that God would do it. I can trust God's faithfulness in my life because he is working beyond my life. It's not just about the here and now. I can trust him because he has always been working and he will always be working long after I'm dead and gone. And that's a good thing. One last example we see here in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verse 23. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The last thing we see here about God's faithfulness is this. God's faithfulness gives me hope to stand against opposition. To stand against opposition. Now, it starts off and says, by faith, Moses. But this really isn't about Moses. This is about Moses' parents. Okay? This is the faith of his parents that we find out in Exodus. Their names are Amram, Amram and Jochebed. And they hid him, it says here, for three months. All of y'all who have, have had infant newborns, can you imagine? <laughs> Trying to keep them quiet and silent and hidden for three months. But they said they hid him for three months. And we see this story play out. And there's some backstory in Exodus chapter 1. So we're out of Genesis now into Exodus. Exodus 1 and then Exodus 2. So in Exodus 1, it says that Israelites, they, they're still in Egypt, but they kept growing. They just kept having babies and kept growing bigger and bigger and bigger and multiplying. There's this huge people. And then a new Pharaoh comes to power who didn't know Joseph. Didn't know all the things he had done to save Egypt. Didn't know his, 
you know, how he had, all he had done to, to help and so forth. And so he gets really scared about this growing Israelite population that might get too big and try to overthrow him or take over power in Egypt. And so he's going to try to deal with them. And so his first, his first reaction is to enslave them. It's like, all right, we're going to make everybody, all the Israelites are going to be slaves. You're going to serve us. And he enslaves them all. And then he goes to the midwives that help deliver the Hebrew children. He says, I want you to kill every Hebrew boy as soon as it comes out of the womb. Just take them out. Because he's trying to do population control. Not the girls, just the boys. Take them out. But the midwives refuse to do it. Right? Their whole job was bringing life into the world. They weren't about to kill them. So they refuse to do it. And so instead he then goes to basically all of the Egyptian population. says, hey, listen, if you see any Hebrew boys, any Hebrew boys, any infants, throw them in the river. Just throw them in the Nile, drown them, get rid of all the boys, only keep the girls, because again, he's trying to limit the population. He's going to try to take out this whole generation of boys. And for him, it was population control. But if he would have succeeded, he would have essentially stopped the promise of God and the people of God. He would have cut off an entire people. It would basically have been genocide. And so God protects, once again, his faithfulness shows up. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses' parents get pregnant, and they have their son, and they refuse to kill him, and they hid him as long as they could for three months. And in, in Exodus, it says that because he was a fine child. In Hebrews, it says it because he was a, a beautiful child. But I was just thinking, is that really the reason? Is this because he was so good looking? I mean, this is a good looking kid. We better save him. Or like, if he had been ugly, they'd have been like, yeah, just toss him out. We're, we're, we're good. Right? No, no right? like every mom thinks their kid's beautiful. Like, that's, just like, like that's just part of it. So this isn't a, a physical appearance thing. Another translator said it was because he was a healthy child. But again, implying like if he would have been a sick child, then like, yeah, just get rid of him, we're good. No, that's not, that's, that's not what's going on here. The better translation, I believe, is this, that he was no ordinary child. In other words, he was special. He was chosen. He was favored by God for a special purpose and a special place in God's mission. And somehow, we don't know how or why or whatever, but somehow he revealed that to Moses' parents, and it spurred their faith to protect their son. Moses was the one who would continue the chosen line of God's people and fulfill all these promises that we've been waiting on. And somehow, God revealed this to his parents, and so it says they were not afraid of the king. They straight up defied Pharaoh at the risk of their lives. That's like automatic execution. But they did it anyways. Let's, I'm going to read just that portion of the story for you because I think it's just a really great story here in Exodus chapter 2. Verse 3 says this. When she, could, when she his, his mother, could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. 
And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So I want to focus here not on Moses again, but on Jochebed in this scenario. Think about her as a mother. She had a lot to fear in this story, right? She had the fear of hiding her baby boy in the river. Like, put him in a basket and just floating him out in the water. Like, no idea what's going to happen. Is he going to drown? Is he going to be attacked by animals? Is he going to, like, who knows? She had the fear of then, once he's found, nursing him for Pharaoh's daughter. Right? This is the enemy's daughter that she's doing this for. Like, like there's a certain amount of fear of just like, am I going to be found out? What's going to happen here? And then there was the even greater fear that once she was done nursing him, once he was weaned, she now had to release her son to go live in the enemy's house to be raised by the Egyptians. And she had the fear just of being found out and being killed for her defiance of Pharaoh in the first place. She had a lot to fear, and yet Hebrews says they were not afraid. I don't think that means that they didn't feel fear, that they didn't get the knots in their stomach from time to time. I think that's just part of being human. When it says they were not afraid, what it means is they did not give in to the fear. They didn't fear man more than they feared God. And so they trusted in God's faithfulness to keep his promise alive through their son Moses and doing whatever they had to do. They knew he had done it all these years, all these generations, and he would do it again. You see, their courage to overcome the fear was not in their own strength, it was in God's strength. That God would do it. One way or another. I can't do it, but God can. Their hope was in his faithfulness, even if it cost them their very lives. Which was a real possibility in this scenario. They knew that God would be faithful one way or another. So even when opposition comes... I have hope because God is faithful. Even when opposition comes, even when you have to fight, even when you have to struggle under oppression, even when things are, the arrows are flying at you and you're barely dodging them to stay alive, even when things feel like the water is coming over your head, God is faithful. And the way we stand against the opposition, whatever that might be, is not in our strength, but in his strength. Trusting in God's faithfulness to carry us through, one way or another. Deeper faith finds my hope for the future in God's faithfulness in the past. Our hope for the future is grounded in God's faithfulness in the past. Think about it. God has proved himself faithful to the Israelites over and over again, all through the Old Testament, making, making all of his promises come true. He has proven himself faithful to his church for 2,000 years plus. He's been growing and strengthening and sustaining the church to this very day and age. God has proven himself faithful to us by saving us from our sins and giving us Jesus to make us right with God again, to be saved from our sin through faith in him 
That's a tangible picture of God's faithfulness in your life. If God gave us nothing else, that's enough. And so we walk in hope because our faithful God will continue working in the next generation just like he has in the last generation. Because he will continue to work beyond our lives just as he's working right now in our lives. And he will carry us through the opposition as he has carried so many saints before us. God is faithful. Stand with me, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. God, we thank you so much for just the reminders from your word of your faithfulness. God, every page, every story points to your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. In a world of lies, in a world of failures, in a world of broken promises, Lord, we hold tight to the reality, to the truth that you are the faithful one. You are the only proven, guaranteed constant in our lives. And so our faith and our hope is in you, in you alone. You have never failed, and you never will. Lord, we believe you are faithful. Thank you. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.